Messina Covers is not just any other case company. David Messina and Erica Howard design and produce some beautiful cases that fit both form and function. And you can choose your case design, fabric and trim color, add custom engraving, and more. And of course, you can find out more at MessinaCovers.net. Peter Pickett and his crack team of craftspeople are continually innovating and providing the trumpet community with spectacular options for stock and custom mouthpieces. He and Eric Marine can help you find just the right size to fit your needs, and you should definitely consider trying the acrylic cup and rim. And if you're in the market for a custom trumpet, then Peter and Eric can build a Blackburn trumpet just for you. Check them out at picketblackburn.com. To stay current on what's going on with Studio HFL, you can follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram. And you can watch the live and pre-recorded interviews on the YouTube channel. And while you're there, go ahead and subscribe. My first experience with a Hammond design mouthpiece has turned into a bit of obsession. There is something very comfortable about playing one of Carl's mouthpieces. The comfort, response, and sound are part of the HD experience. Try one of the stock mouthpieces or have Carl make you a custom one. Either way, everything is better in HD, and you can find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you are, I would love it if you would take just a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts to leave a star rating and a review. Doing so will help improve the visibility of this podcast and draw more listeners. When I first tried an Eastman B-flat trumpet, I was blown away by both the playability and the sound. And the more I found out about the company and got to know the people, I knew that this was a company I wanted to have a relationship with. There is a drive for excellence in design and production of every instrument, not just the high-end products. And the proof of this is that the one and only Doc Severinsen helped to design the Eastman Beginner trumpet model. I still play that B-flat and have added a spectacular cornet and flugelhorn to my arsenal. You can find out more at eastmanwins.com. I'd love it if you'd visit the Studio HFL website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. And while you're there, you can also visit the merch page and buy a Studio HFL shirt for yourself and as a gift for someone else. Of course, you can do that at studiohfl.com. My current situation with my C trumpet is a bit ridiculous. My Shire C, which Samantha Lane helped me trial and choose, is the most versatile C I've ever played. The same goes for the new Destino designed by Doc. This horn sizzles when I need it to sizzle and is as smooth as silk when I wear my sil- uh, never mind. Uh, anyway, the line of Shire's trumpets includes the Q series, which are production models, and the custom series. Either way you go, you'll love the sound you get, and you'll also experience exceptional customer service. Find out more at seshires.com. Here's how you can access exclusive content like the interview excerpts. I'd like to invite you to become a part of the Studio HFL community by going to Patreon and choosing from one of the four tiers of support. You can help to financially support the show for as little as $36 a year. That's only $3 a month. Benefits include exclusive access to interview excerpts, a behind-the-scenes report, an invitation to be in the room with a guest during an interview, product discounts, and more. You can join the community of faithful supporters by visiting patreon.com slash studio HFL. Hey, Larry. Hello. Hey, man. How are you? Uh, how are you doing? Good. Well, first of all, welcome to my podcast. I- I'm really thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And do you want to go by Pete or Peter? 
Yeah, Pete. Pete. Unless you're my mother and I'm in trouble, you know. That's... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um, anyways, uh, the first I became aware of you, of course, was through a song, uh, Song of Hope. And of course, associated with Ryan Anthony, uh, rightly so. I mean, and we, we, I want to talk about that. But uh, first, I want to find out more about you as a composer, uh, how long you've been in Canada, because I don't think your accent is necessarily uh, Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't quite have the, uh, the, 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 the twang that they have up here. Let's go with that. But if I go back to England, they tell me I sound Canadian. If I come to back into Canada, they tell me I sound English. So I guess I'm somewhere over the North Atlantic accent-wise, I guess. You sound uh, like you're from Liverpool or close by. Yeah, well, um, I spent most of my adult life in Manchester, so pretty close, pretty close by. Um, so, and, and my parents are, are both from the Midlands or from the North mm-hmm. in the UK. So that's pretty much the, the, the UK side of the accent. And then over here, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so over here, how long have you been uh, over here? I should say across the pond. I'm trying to think of all these stereotypical phrases. <laughs> people use. Um, uh, since, since 2013, I moved November, 2013. So this is seven years. Um, the first few years were me very quickly sort of I was I was everywhere. I was in Canada for maybe six weeks, and then back in the UK for four weeks because the decision to move over was a pretty quick one, and so I still had a lot of work there as well as wanting to see my then girlfriend and now wife over here, and so for the first couple of years it was a lot of back and forth, and um, you know, sort of not having a residence anywhere officially really, but um, but yeah, I live here permanently now, uh, and. Uh, Generally, yeah, I love it. It's just these winters are a bit tough, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't think you get anything, uh, not even in Scotland, right? Would you get anything no. quite that that cold? No. Well, today's minus 31C with the wind chill, Oof. which I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but I know at minus 40, they cross over. So it's, it's somewhere. It's very, very cold. Yeah. 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 And this is the first winter. Like, it's not been too bad up till now, but this has been the first winter I've I've not managed to book a residency or, or have a trip to Texas or to Arizona or somewhere like that, which is nice because you can do four weeks of this crazy cold as long as you know that you've got something to you know, look forward to. Right. Sipping a margarita at TMEA or something like that. <laughs> but um, no, not this year, of course. Yeah. So uh, you met your wife. Uh, was she in England when you met or were you over here? No, we actually met in Saskatchewan. I'd... Um, I, a buddy of mine, Will Martin is his name. He's a, uh, a guy, we were very good friends back in Manchester when we both lived there. And he moved over to Saskatchewan not longer after he completed his uh, degree, became a teacher there. And we reconnected um, my first time back in Canada, which was I think in 2011, maybe, when I'd, um, I'd come over for Edmonton Symphony Orchestra performing my trumpet concerto, Apophenia. Uh, with with Jens with uh, Jens Linderman, mm-hmm. and so I came over for that, and I emailed Will and said, "Hey, dude, I'm I'm going to be in Canada. I mean, who knows how Canada, how big Canada is, like until you've actually been here. Right. So I'm going to be in Edmonton." He said, "Well, that's not going to be far. That's not too far away. So why don't you come on down to Saskatoon, and uh, we'll we'll hang some and and 
of course, you get on a Greyhound from Edmonton to Saskatoon, and eight hours later you arrive, and it's apparently not far. And I've learned that about Canada, that eight hours away is pretty close still to anyone. Well, and I learned that uh, on the flip side. I worked on cruise ships, British cruise ships, uh, Queen Mary II, uh, you know, Cunard, and then uh, uh, P&O. A couple of ships for them, but all with Brits. And you know, I'd tell them, "Oh, yeah, I'm only three hours from." Well, I, I drove. Well, I drove from Indianapolis to Birmingham, not Birmingham, but Birmingham, Alabama, eight hours. And and somebody said, eight hours. We could be like in the north of Scotland, in eight hours." Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. Drive eight hours from virtually anywhere in the UK, and you're either stuck in traffic, or you're in the sea. You no, know, they're the only, <laughs> <laughs> the only two options, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, so um, uh, Will worked with Michelle, my wife, and we briefly met, I think, that trip. And then uh, I came back the following summer um, to conduct um, what's called the Prairie Music Residency. It's a, a British style brass band summer course that they have up there that the community band in Saskatoon runs. And I conducted the first course, and, and Michelle was um, one, of the, one of the participants. and yeah that's it so went from a, there she's a musician as well she she is yeah she's a she's a band teacher or right now she's a k through four music teacher teaching outside in winnipeg so that's kind of you know pretty far removed from being a band teacher right now but you know we're all adapting to to the situations uh around us but yes yeah, so she's a trumpet player she's a teacher and uh really she was the only person that laughed at um, laughed at my joke that I told every day and you know I I thought it was a pretty good joke but luckily she did as well no one else did well I'm I'm waiting to hear it okay uh there's a there's a new bar on the moon it's okay but there's not much atmosphere I I have told that joke like a thousand times and I get the same reaction it's like deadpan, right? Nobody. I think that's hilarious. I love I that one. I, I, but you know what? It makes it makes me laugh, and so I'm all right with that. <laughs> and and after that, it made Michelle laugh, so that was okay. It worked out okay. Um, okay, so a trumpet player. Uh, your wife's a trumpet player, and now I'm starting to. But you're not just a composer; you're also a conductor. But now I'm curious. What's are you a trumpet player to begin no. with? No, no, no. I was a, uh, I was a pianist and a double bass player and a little violin back when I was younger. And I think I was pretty good at violin looking at the repertoire I played and knowing, you know, that, that there was talk of sending me off to a specialist music school when I was a teenager and stuff for violin, which I just wasn't interested in in the slightest. I, I think I wanted to be a Premier League footballer, you know, but yeah. that didn't, that didn't turn out the way I hoped. Um, but on the other hand, I wouldn't swap it for the life I've got now. I'd maybe swap the money. I wouldn't mind getting paid a <laughs> weekly wage like those guys get paid to write music. Right. Um, yeah. So, but piano was was my main instrument. Yeah. I again working on. Uh, I, I was thrilled to learn a lot about British culture working on on those ships because, you know, there was nothing broadcast from the states. It was all stuff from either India, uh, the Philippines, or the UK. And so I learned a lot about rugby. I yeah. learned a lot about cricket and about uh, 
well, we call it soccer, right? But football. Yeah. And, uh, but rugby was absolutely fascinating to me. I mean, these, watching these guys just beat the tar out of each other, uh-huh. right? I mean, if our NFL teams had, I mean, they, they're a bunch of wimps compared to the rugby people. Yeah, well, I, I'm a big NFL fan, so over here I call it, I call football soccer as well to avoid any confusion. Mm-hmm. But, but like the rugby guys, there's no real padding and protective gear. It's just, you know, you, you, put, your, you put your whole body on the line every time you play that game. And, and it's, it's kind of fun. I played it a little bit when I was younger. And it's it's a game where you like you have nothing but disdain for the people you're playing against. You're out there to make the biggest hits, and if you hurt them in the meantime, that's the way it goes. But then straight away afterwards, you shake hands and and have a chat and go for a pint. You know, it's like it's a legitimate field of war. But afterwards, like you're out of it, and and uh, then it's not too similar to d- dissimilar to you know a brass band competition in the UK. You know where everyone's got nothing nice to say about each other until they all hang out in the pub afterwards. <laughs> well, I was, I was drawing a parallel between orchestras and music directors here. It's like, you know, it's a, it's an all out battle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not too similar again. <laughs> yeah. So uh, brass band, since you were a piano and double bass guy, you didn't come up through the brass band culture there. No. In fact, I never heard one until, um, until I was 18 when I left, so I grew up in a town called Nuneaton, which is uh, near Birmingham, right in the center of the UK. And um, I had an ex-girlfriend who played euphonium in one, but I never, I obviously never went to one of her concerts or anything. Um, but when I get to the to music college, to the Royal Northern College of Music, there's just a huge brass band culture there. A, it's in Manchester, so it's the sort of um, that Manchester to West Yorkshire area in the north of England is like the sort of epicenter of brass bands. Um, and also at the um, the RNCM, the Royal Northern, they have uh, an amazing brass band course there um, that at the time was run by James Gawley, who is now over in the States uh, down in Pittsburgh. Um, and yeah, it was just full of some of the players that we now consider the world's best brass band players and and brass players as well you know lots of incredibly uh, well-known orchestral players came through that program and and you know the orchestras in the UK are, uh, many of them are full of people who grew up playing you know the cornet for instance and you become a trumpet player Morris Murphy the most famous example of that you know played for the Black Knight Band who was the most who are the most famous band in the world and um, yeah, I went from there to uh, to an orchestra in Manchester and then to the London Symphony Orchestra. And I guess the rest is history. We, we get to hear it on all those great films, you know. Right. So, yeah, there's a huge tradition that exists. And, and I just happened to be going to music college at the at the epicenter of it, really. Um, and everyone who was at college would also play in the, the brass bands, the external community brass bands on the evening. And they're very, very very high skill levels um, that those groups play to, you know, it's professional standards really. And then everyone would come back to the RNCM for a pint in the, in the bar afterwards, because we had a subsidized bar, believe it or not. I mean, I know it was cheaper for students to drink there than it was for the punters going to the concerts. I mean, 
yeah, it, it's it's slightly different culture to over here, and um, and so you get chatting to lots of brass players and uh, brass band players, especially, and and I ended up uh, my best buddy is a guy called David Thornton, who's a euphonium player, and he now conducts Grangthorpe Colliery Band, who is a, a a band that I'm sure lots of people have heard of. That they were the band that the film Dressed Off was based on, and right. um, but he's an incredible euphonium player uh as well and so he um we became best buddies and and euphonium players don't have this huge repertoire like say a violin player would or a cello player and so they're always after new music so i ended up writing lots of pieces for euphonium and so it was kind of a natural step to go from that into brass band once i turned down the the dark side of the tone as it were <laughs> Uh, so okay, let's let's back up on composition for just a second. When did that uh, did it start with arranging something, or did you start uh, with writing your very first piece? You know, at at what age, and do you even recall what it was? I don't recall what it was as such. I mean, I I gave an analogy uh, a couple of days ago about this to to a class because someone said, "When did you start composing?" I said, "I don't really remember." And the reason I don't remember it is the same reason I don't remember learning to walk because it was something that at some stage you couldn't do and then you start trying to do and eventually you can do. And I don't know where the where one point stops and another point finishes, but for sure I was playing piano at the age of seven or eight. And I remember, you know, you play some fun pieces at the start and then you get into Mozart and Bach and, and Beethoven, which is music I, <clears throat> especially Beethoven and Bach that I really truly love. But it's a bad way to help a kid fall in love with music, you know, having to learn to play an instrument, get your fingers doing these things that are completely unnatural to anything you've used your fingers before. You know, the, the idea that your hands would be flat like that isn't a natural position. And you play and you're having to learn where they go as well as read this foreign kind of notation thing in front of you and put all this together in your brain. It, yeah, it's not a smart way to, to, to get people to fall in love with back and, and Beethoven but um, what I would do is I'd often because I hated practicing and I still do but if I take maybe the chord sequence of a piece and and then write my own melody over the top of it and that was kind of my um, that was kind of how I started you know I, and to be honest with you like most composers that's how we still carry on we find something that someone else did that we really love and we work out how that's going to fit into our sort of original soundscape or landscape or you know the piece that we're, we're writing at any given moment so yeah I started composing all the way back then and I think it was just always it was just always something that I did um it was always always part of me um and I don't know I, I think even when I went to music college it still wasn't something I took seriously though mm -hmm. You know, I remember graduating from music college and I was, I don't know, I was, I got a job and, and I left music completely really just because I was managing a, a little supermarket and um, it was a 24-7 place. So, you know, shift patterns were all over the place. And I guess what had really happened over the four years at college, I wasn't ma mature enough to be there as a, as a, a human, that is for sure. Um <laughs> And I think, like, I'd kind of gone into college as, a, as, as someone who 
I don't know, maybe it was the path of least resistance. I'm glad it was. But it was never something I remember sort of really, I knew I loved it, but it wasn't something I necessarily wanted people to know that I loved, you know? It never felt cool. And this is a problem that we face all the time with with high school students, right? That they may love it, but it's not necessarily the thing you want people to know that you do. And so I ended up going to music college and, and I'm glad I did. I had a great time there, made a lot of friends and I still work with a lot of the people that I went to college with. But I I wasn't a mature human being and I came out the other side and, and I think the experiences at college and with one of my teachers were, weren't positive experiences. And so for the first time, probably that I'd ever remembered, I was 22 and not really writing music. You know, it was the first time I remembered not writing music. And I got pretty sick. I got, I suffered from depression after there. And it was then that I kind of realized that it was because music was missing and specifically composing from my life. And, um, I, you know, you had to take responsibility for, for that and, and um understand that actually this thing that you'd kind of almost been trying to hide that you weren't mature enough to deal with it was it was entirely you it was your person it was me mm-hmm. and so you know I had to sort of embrace that and and it was in a way the best thing that could that could um could have happened to me because it really made me understand the love I have for for music and the joy it brings you know, into not only my life, but into other people's lives when we share music, you know, and that's one of the hardest things right now that it's kind of weird because for me personally, like I'm still sat in my room writing music, but that's only maybe 50 to 70% of the job. The other bit is jumping on a plane and doing a residency somewhere or going to a rehearsal in town or any of these things. And those shared experiences have been taken away from so many of us and the danger for all of us is that we kind of find it a bit easy not to really dedicate ourselves to what to do i'm really worried about high school programs i know there's going to be cuts but there's going to be a lot of kids who maybe haven't quite engaged with it in the same way that they would because they loved the idea of walking in those band and orchestra rooms and it was what happened in those rooms that that was the the genesis for the love not like, oh, I love music, therefore I'll go into the band room, you know? And so we've got to work really hard as we, we come out of this. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess that was that was my path. And, and, and so at that point I decided that I needed to do a, a master's degree and I went to the University of Salford, which is in, um, well, I'd say in Manchester, it's not, it's technically a different city. It's like Minneapolis and St. Paul are different mm-hmm. cities, but it's essentially the same metropolis. Um, just the other side of the river. So I went there and studied with um, Peter Graham, who is a very well-known brass band composer, an incredible composer and just a brilliant teacher. And he, I think he kind of understood what I needed more than, um, more than maybe anyone I'd really come across before. And he understood that I was kind of maybe lacking in some confidence because you can't write music without confidence, at least not good music without, I mean, it's like anything, you know, you can't as a trumpet player go and play the trumpet if you don't think you're actually going to play the phrase in front of you. It's, it. you're not going to if you don't think that. Um, But he also, you know, uh, sort of nurtured me and and really I owe him an awful lot because he sort of brought me out of myself as a composer and gave me the confidence to do the things that I was doing. And yeah, I owe him a great, great debt of gratitude for sure. 
Well, you know, I'm thinking composition, you know, we too often, I think, forget that there's composition itself, but then the art of orchestration, right? It's not just writing the tune or the, the harmony or, or the form. Then you've got to decide, right, who gets what voice or what voice gets what, yeah. what part. So in your education, is this also simultaneously uh, part of it is learning how to orchestrate? A little, I think the biggest thing, so going to, going to music college, you know, it's, it's like going to, to music school over here. If you go to Juilliard or somewhere like that, there's a level of expectation that's already on you. You're not getting in there unless you have, you know, something significant to start off with. And, and I think the biggest thing, and I'd, I'd love to go back and ask my former teacher, like whether this was something he saw in me, the biggest thing is a curious mind that if you see someone who is willing to, because for composition, you just want to, you want to teach your students to, or coach your students to teach themselves. Like, because ultimately, you know, there aren't, a, there isn't, a, again, the difference to say trumpet is that there isn't a study in front of you that, that you've got to get from the beginning to the end of by the next lesson. And here's how we're going to approach it four measures at a time. We're going to half the, the value of uh, uh, the, the tempo and, you know, etc. There's no sort of structured way to necessarily approach your week's work. Um, and so you have to be curious and you have to spend a lot of time in other people's scores. So for me, I would, um, I would always just have my head buried in someone else's scores, you know, whether it's Rite of Spring or I remember the, the first brass band piece I listened to, I remember the night, I remember where I was, it was in the halls of residence at the RNCM, the old one. And the next day I went to the library and got the score out for the piece because there was this beautiful moment and it was the euphonium and it was a slow melody in the middle of this 20 minute piece. And, and the euphonium had this beautiful melody and the soprano cornet, the E flat cornet was cut muted and came over the top of it. And it was just for a minute. And it was just this most gorgeous sound because of course the euphonium's more tense as it's up there, but the, the, the soprano cornet was in a more comfortable range, but it was muted. So it was kind of this, it was just an incredible sound. And so I wanted to know what that was. So you get the score out. And now I don't really write many brass band pieces without a moment with soprano cornet and cut muted and, and euphonium. And so, so I guess you, you start like that and you do a lot of time trying to work out, spend a lot of time trying to work out exactly why something sounds the way it sounds, you know, the articulation, like you say, the sort of colors involved, but then gradually you develop your own imagination and you, you try and work out what it is you're trying to say and what the best way is it is to say it that's composing i guess in a sentence and so for instance there was a piece i wrote last year called let this place which was for for wind ensemble and at the beginning of it let this place is a quote from, uh, part of a quote from the plaque outside of auschwitz and the whole premise of this piece was um because the plaque talks about how you know never forget the lessons that we're being taught here like what humanity can do at its very worst basically you know or lack of humanity and you know we see a complete lack of humanity right now all over the place and so this was the piece i wanted to write but it wasn't specifically about the holocaust and it wasn't about that but you can't not acknowledge that within the thing it was the lessons afterwards and so i wanted to create some sort of really ethereal or almost a choir type effect without 
people singing. I wanted it almost to be voices talking to us from the heavens or wherever it is people think maybe they talk from once they once they've left the earth. And and so I, I just spent loads of time trying to imagine how you do that. And I ended up, I think, with um, a quartet of trumpets and trombones cut muted with flutes doubling at, you know, just on low C and E, so the very bottom of their register, doubling the trumpets and then clarinets softly doubling the, the, the trombones and like marimba very slowly rolling. And it just sounds like not an actual choir, because if you wanted an actual choir, you'd write for an actual choir, but it, it sounds almost like one of those 90th synths choir, soft choir sounds. It's like this beautiful sound. So you get an imagination for it and you work out what it is you want. And it that then becomes a tool in itself. And, uh, you know, that, that particular orchestration is featured in a, in a few pieces, because when you want that certain feeling and that certain way of um, people hearing the music you can you can use that as as one of your tools for sure so orchestration is and it and texture is something that's really very important to me which we i've done a lot of these sort of um, adaptable charts recently which have been a lot of fun to do but you have to all composers involved with writing those i've had to get rid of any notion of texture because you just have satb and it could be four trumpets or four baritone sexes or three tubers and a piccolo, you know, you've got to kind of move to other areas. So it's actually been a good compositional exercise as well. Yeah, I think it's it's genius uh, on on the part of composers to, I mean, you, you're describing these sounds that you know are going to communicate. Like you said, you, it's not going to be a choir, because if you wanted a choir, you'd have human yeah. voices. But knowing the combination of instruments that will give that same uh, ethereal uh, quality that you're looking for. And, and I think things like that are, are just, well, that's the reason I play trumpet and that's the reason you're a composer, right? Is, you know, you, you hear it and you know what to do, how, what to create. Yeah, and I, and I, but I think, but it's, it's, it's the real skill for the composer though is, and different composers think differently about this, but for me, like I, I people have heard me say this before, but, like the average sheet of music is about five or 6% ink and the rest of it is white. And I always think my job's the black stuff and your job is the white stuff. So if I think like that, I'm giving a lot of the responsibility to, to you because I need, you, you can't write something about, in this particular case, something so deeply personal to some people that might be listening to it, but also something so utterly horrific that everyone should know about that it's not an easy subject to think about or talk about and also what I'm wanting to do which is draw attention to the idea that that we're living in times that we're dangerously close to some of these things repeating themselves that you have to make it you have to make it human and you have to ha it has to be tangible people have to be able to grab it but they have to feel it and if I've overscored something or if I've over notated something and given you no freedom as a performer then actually I've done the very opposite to what my intent is so I, I, I understand the point you're making but actually it's to me it's just it's a symbiotic relationship because one doesn't exist without the other but really if you embrace the idea that performers 
have, have got their own musical ideas, their own way to make music live and breathe, then it's a very honest thing that you've done. You've given a performer the chance to, to, to be a human being because the way you think about that might be very different to the way I think about that. You may have something to say through your phrasing of that that's different to the way I think it. And unless I so strongly feel a certain specific way about something that I mark it in and I'm very clear about what I mark in, then it's it's fair game after that. I think musicians just like we have honesty in music is the most important thing. You know, there's a piece that comes to mind. I think it's the first to to, to uh, go along with what you're saying. It's the first piece where I think it actually occurred to me that I was doing more than just reading notes and rhythms. And this was, oh, I think back in 93, and it was the first time, it was with orchestra, uh, Corel Hoos's Music for Prague 1969. Yeah. Which, I mean, the imagery that he was trying to communicate, well, not trying, that he did communicate did, yeah. through that. Uh, and, and once you know the, the background of the piece, it's intense. And I'm, I'm actually getting goosebumps, you know, remembering back to this, this experience. And it, it uh, not from the first rehearsal, but once we got into it, I just remember more and more looking forward to this experience each time because it's like, oh, this, this, is, this was real. This is what he experienced, is what he's trying to communicate. And, you know, and I know Mahler and Bach and Beethoven, you know, all the greats did that as well. But this was yeah. the first time that connection for me was, was really obvious. And you know, as an as a, as a audience member for that piece, it's physical. Because like the barbaric nature of some parts of it and that, you know, it like it, it hits you in the chest and you can feel it. You can actually physically feel what he's done. And it's, it's you know, it's not actually like he's an like off the charts talented composer. And it's not a composer I would necessarily choose to listen to. But you have to admire like what he did as a composer. And in that piece, just the brutality of it that, that he brings to, to life. And, and, you know, you go on an experience, it's a journey and it's an experience. And sometimes I feel, and that, that's the way I think about music. I think you, you got something to say as a human being. And I'm fortunate that as a, as a musician, as a composer, I have, an audience to say that too. So, you know, there's a certain amount of ego, I guess, when you think that people should be listening to what you've got to say, I guess, but, but, you know, you, you want to draw attention to something. And if you do it, you have to impact people. You can't be passive. And, and, and the, the, the story behind the piece is one thing, but it can never be an excuse for the piece being anything less than absolutely superbly written, absolute stellar composition. And I think sometimes I see, you know, a little bit that someone says a piece is about something. And if you took that away, if you took the title away or the program note away, we maybe don't quite feel it. And, and of course, everyone listens to music differently and feels music differently. But I think, but I think like there's a certain, there's a certain point where you know that music is going to be understood in a certain way if you've done your job well. Mm-hmm. This is a good segue to uh, Song of Hope because I look at that particular composition 
and I don't mean this as a negative at all, but the simplicity of the melody, the simplicity of, of the piece itself, it communicates exactly what you titled it. It communicates, I think, the intent behind that piece. Um, and of course, it became popular because of, well, maybe not. I, I need to ask, you know, if this is really, was it Ryan that really made that piece? Uh, yeah. And the, was the genesis of that for him? So it, it's kind of a, um, firstly, thank you. It was, that's kind of you to say. The piece uh, started actually on Christmas Day. I remember um, I, I'd been away to the Midwest Clinic in Chicago. And at the time, I was, while I was away, I'd split up with my ex-wife, which was excellent. It was a very good thing to do. Um, and I got back, and so I had nothing to do on Christmas Day. I'd been to see my sister and seeing your kids open the presents and stuff. And I was in a really very good mood because, you know, life was finally on the up. And I sort of thought, well, I might as well write. And I was writing a Cornet concerto for, for Mark Wilkinson of Bowden's Band, who's a very good friend of mine. He'd been at the band for 21 years. And, and so I started writing and it, it was only a few hours on Christmas day. And, and I'd written the middle movement of this concerto and it was called Simply Song which I took a lot of grief for from my friends for not being very imaginative with titles, but it was just a simple song. And then sometime after that, maybe it was recorded. I remember Mark recorded it. And sometime after that, Ryan and I were, were having a drink and he would always rib me saying, you know, for such a happy guy, you write some pretty serious and miserable music you know, why don't you write any happy music? And I was like, well, dude, you know, like I write the miserable music because I'm a happy guy, you know, it's, that's the balance. And he'd always just kind of poke as he, as he always did and had a lot of fun. And so when I got the recording of this, I sent through the whole concerto because it's kind of the second movement song and then the third movement's really uplifted and fun. So I sent that through and said, hey, here you go, told you I could write fun music. And I'll never forget, 10 hours later, I got an email back from him and he said, for 10 hours, I've listened to this over and over and over again. He says, I've just been crying. I'm just, this, this piece has to be, this piece has to be my anthem. But he said, the thing is, cause it ended, it ended, um, it ended pretty reflective and, and, you know, cause it was the, it was the end of a middle movement. So it was, you, you didn't want to set up the, the kind of fun movement with a big, so it sort of ended reflective. And he said, I need it to end with a sense of, of hope and positivity. He says, I need you to call it, I, I need you to arrange it for brass band, brass ensemble, symphony, wind ensemble, whatever. If he got a chance to do it with didgeridoo ensemble, I'm pretty sure I'd have been arranging it for that. And he says it needs to be with one, two or three soloists. I don't want to ever really do it too often by myself because this, this battle I'm facing isn't me, it's everyone. We go through it together, whether it's, um, whether it's with family, with friends, with doctors, with other medical professionals, but also everybody is affected by this one way or another. And so um, I want this... I want the symbol of it, the, the metaphor on stage that there's always someone with you. 
because I think that's a powerful message to to send to the people who are in the audience and who are maybe experiencing similar things in their life, you know? And he said, and the final thing is, I need it to be called Song of Hope. And so, you know, he was is uh, one of my best buddies, of course, and miss him dearly. But when one of your best buddies says that, and and uh, you, and it's Ryan who is someone who thinks about music in very similar ways that, that I do. You you don't say no, and and so I did that, and um, we actually ran it um, up in Banff. Jens Lindemann has his. Uh, or used to, hasn't happened for a couple of years now, but uh, the brass uh, course that he has up there, and I'd been composing in residence, I think three years in a row. And on the last year we we ran Song of Hope and uh, and I think that must've been 2014 in the summer because then nine months later was the first Cancer Blows. Mm-hmm. And there was the recording made with with Dave Bilger and um, Mike Sachs and, and Ryan. And uh, that was, that was, uh, number one, it was it was videoed from the wings, and that went straight onto Facebook. This is these how these things happen now, and a lot of people were sort of blown away by Ryan's playing and all the rest of it because that last piccolo note is just glorious. And Mike and and Dave are just you know incredible players as well, of course. And um, I think Ryan realized straight away that it kind of impacted people and so because it was actually a live recording session it had a live audience ryan liked that he liked recording live he liked music to live and breathe rather than you know to be in the stale environment of a of a cutting production studio you know where you can drop in a couple of 16th notes or something um and he liked the mistakes because it it made it real um, although, of course, there's absolutely no mistakes on that recording. I was, was going to say, there's, it was yeah. pristine. It was, it was just one take. And um, and at the end, that's why on the end of the video on YouTube, uh, Ryan says, OK, let's do that again. It's because everything was being recorded twice in front of audience. And I think I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that that was... Um, uh, that was that was just one one take that we get to see. There was no edits, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, of course, that Ryan released that because he realised, you know, the sort of the the power of that performance and uh, and of, of maybe of the music as well. And 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 from there, that's where the piece kind of came alive. And um, you know, I'm grateful that that it did and 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 you know there's not really a day that goes past that I don't receive an email from someone or a text or a Facebook message or something I know it was the same for Ryan as well with people telling you how the piece had impacted them or they performed it at a, a funeral or maybe performed it at a christening as well because you know whenever Ryan would introduce Juicer he'd say this is this is about hope and hope doesn't have to always come from despair you know it can can just be for good things from a good place as well. So um, I'm very grateful for, for for that impact that it's had. I kind of wish I never had to write it because if one of my best buddies didn't have cancer, I never would have had to. You know, uh, November 2019, 
just a little over a year ago, uh, I had a trumpet conference here in Indianapolis, and Ronnie Rahm, uh, Kathy Leach, and Doc Severinsen were some of my guests. And so that's where I had uh, contacted you, and I, I said, hey, I'm, I need to get a hold of an arrangement for this. And you, you sent this to me, but it was missing one of the inside parts. Anyways, I had the score. I created an oh, extra yeah. part out of that. But uh, it was for three soloists, and I thought, well, I've got four people on stage because I was going to be playing as well. So I, I actually went in and, and split it into four parts. But now that I, I understand... Uh, why Ryan wanted to do that? I'm thinking that's that's the way it's supposed to be, is to share and and uh, of course Ronnie and Doc and Kathy as well. Uh, they were they loved Ryan, just I think you know as much as anybody could. Yeah. And uh, but it was special to be a a part of that. And I would say it's the most spectacular performance. But it was the that night it was the most spectacular performance of of that just the meaning yeah. behind it and uh so it, well I, i'll say this i i really appreciate that you did this and thank you for contributing that piece and so many others i mean it's i know that's not your uh your uh crowning achievement but it, it wouldn't be bad if it was right <laughs> no i always um you know, I, I, I'm good friends with a British composer called Martin Ellaby, and he always he has a piece called Paris Sketches, which is played in, by every wind ensemble, concert band, etc., in, in the world. And he used to get really annoyed when people would come up to him and say, you're the guy that wrote Paris Sketches. And I said, to, and I'd say, why do you get annoyed? He's like, well, because I've written lots of other music. It's not just this one piece I wrote 20 years ago. And I, and I said to him, I said, well, I don't think I'd ever get annoyed if people came up and... <laughs> and said that and I don't think now looking back he was annoyed he just wanted people to know he'd written other pieces but you know what it doesn't matter because music is here to bring joy and, and beauty and hope and compassion empathy healing it's here to bring all those things into the world and to have had the the fortune to write a piece and the platform that that piece was then given that that it is that it's able to do those things you know you never stop coming back to a place of gratitude for that for sure mm -hmm. you know they say out of uh tragedy or hardship uh great art emerges you could look at the blues right i mean you can't really yeah. write or sing the blues until you've you've suffered you're, you've endured something you know i look at 2020 and who knows how much longer as being one of those periods where and already great art has begun to come from this mm -hmm. how have you have you experienced that yourself have you been inspired or or moved to create as a result of this i mean the answer is yes um but the answer is also i don't know because in the middle of this time that was already very difficult for us all and and kind of that communal sense of music making that shared experience of music making was taken away from us and so we were already going through all the grief for all the things that we lost we were all living in a stage of, of of grief one way or the other and still are and of course in the middle of that ryan passed and so like i wasn't really able to to do anything after that i mean you know, it's it's cruel enough 
on everybody. And then you can't go to a funeral, you can't go to a memorial service or a concert or something to celebrate and part of that grief process and you're already in grief so you don't really have too much more to give you know you're just in this permanent state and so that's not a necessarily a good place to be writing from but you start working with it and you know there's there's been a few pieces I've written now in the last couple of months and and I've worked with this group of composers called the creative repertoire initiative which was a, a pretty cool thing um where uh, Frank to Kelly realized um, pretty early on, we're talking, you know, at the end of March, early April, that this thing was going to last for quite some time. And there was a real issue that band and instrumental music programs wouldn't have repertoire to play if you're only allowed four or eight kids in a classroom. And so he got together a group of composers um, who are all very well known, all really high, highly skilled practitioners and um, a lot of fun, all of them as well. And we got together and decided to create a, this adaptable repertoire um, that was a bit different to the sort of standard flex that we're used to, you know, where part one is on flute or oboe or clarinet, etc., all the way down to tube on part five, although there's been a few of those created as well. Um, and the idea was that we'd recreate some of the pieces of ours that were most well known for maybe four or five parts and uh, so that people could still enjoy music making, even uh, no matter what instrumentation was put in front of you. Because as I think I said earlier, like you don't know if you were going to end up with two tubers and two flutes <laughs> one day and then three clarinets and, you know, I don't know, a tenor sax the next day. It could be anything. So you needed to have music that would work for all of those. And as I sort of started arranging a few tunes of mine that already existed, into these adaptable things, I realized that it's a bit like doing a piano reduction of a concerto or something. As a composer, you've kind of birthed it the perfect way you want to see it. And so to have to reduce it down to, you know, in a, the case of a piano reduction, someone with only 10 fingers, it's, I need another two fingers on each hand or something, you know, I need all these lines in there. So it's very, very difficult to do. And so actually, instead of um, arranging existing pieces, I think I did one or two of those, I decided to start writing some pieces specifically for those adaptable ensembles that now could exist as a tuba quartet, could exist as a flute quartet, etc. And it's and it's you know it's pretty neat to be able to do those things because like number one, it's given a chance for for people to carry on music making and putting together these you know these it, they're not great but these virtual band things that, that schools are having to do to, to kind of get some sense of performance, it's a lot easier to put together 10 players playing a piece than it is 50 players, you know? And so doing five pieces instead of in one is less time consuming and, and you produce more. And so like, it's been kind of good knowing that you're doing some good in that regard, but also they'll have a life after, after this COVID time because all those rural programs that never, you know, you maybe have three kids in grade nine and four in 10 and the math teachers playing, you know, percussion in the 11, 12 band, you know, you, 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 they've now actually got some repertoire that they can work on and produce a finished performance, you know, and that's music by people who they know and hear when they go on the internet, John Mackey or Eric Whitaker or, you know, 
all these kind of composers that they'll know of but previously hadn't been able to play well now they can and that's you know that's going to be really positive moving forwards as well well i so, think too knowing these flex pieces or, or uh, adaptations of these is you might come in you're a kid and you're playing one part one day and another part the next and another part the next and so you think this is really good in a sense of music education because you're not always going to be playing the melody. You're not always going to be playing a, yeah. a viola part, right? Just the 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 whole note uh, stuff. But you know, I think there's there's lasting benefit, like you say. There's life beyond this because this this does give, and not even just the small rural programs, but I think this gives music educators more tools to, and maybe even to create more chamber music. Right. I mean, if you've got a band of 200, why not have, you know, why not split it into five or six different groups? Right. Exactly. I mean, there's two things with that one, the actual flex charts I've done. So I did Song of Hope as a flex chart because I didn't want to do it in four parts. I didn't want four tubers playing it. I wanted it still to sound balanced. I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do that. So, but like it, the, the way I've got the flex set up, it can be done by a clarinet choir or it can be done by a sax choir or a brass choir or woodwind choir. Um, you know, so it's actually, it can be done by those as a chamber ensemble, like you say, but it can also be done as a, you know, a complete mixture of instruments, whatever you've got there. So that's that's kind of neat. But the other thing that I really like about it is that the, the adaptable pieces where there is no instrumentation, it's just four parts. The first thing I did was I give a score of every instrument. So flutes one to four not only get their own individual part, but they get a score so they can see what the other parts are doing. And you know what? If you're flute four, flute four you can, number one, you're listening up, which you never listen up three parts as a flute player, not really. Um, and so that's a good educational thing. But number two, what if you wanted to try a slightly harder part? You wanted to play, you can do all of those things. And you can record them yourself if you want, because the kids have that kind of skill these days. You know, it's just a normal part of, of what they do and, and that's something that's very very different but the other thing is that what if you have got two flutes and two tubers well the tubers now get to play a melody if they want to and the flutes get to play the bass line and so the tubers have to listen down the flutes have to listen up to the instruments that they usually do the complete opposite so it can improve ears and all of a sudden tubers are playing inner parts i mean you know there's actually a lot of really good um really good benefits to it and also like the, the, the creativity because they're in four parts but if you've got eight kids in the room well what color do you want from this passage because you don't need all eight playing all the time so now they get to be orchestrators a bit which gets them thinking about what what orchestration is it that that i want and why why would the composer pick here for this to be the flute first time the trumpet the second time or things like that and that's kind of exciting you know that that actually there's a potential for people to come out the other side better musicians because of it yeah um and given the amount of bucket drumming i presume there's gonna be no rhythm problems moving forwards for, for a generation either <laughs> right, right yeah i, I want to back up for just a second you know, thinking about writing out of tragedy and what popped into my head was Mahler's uh kinder toten leader yeah. and you know what i was thinking was if somebody had lost a child and didn't know how to express themselves and they, they were able to experience the song cycle, it would give them an opportunity to, to identify, to realize, oh, I'm, I'm not going through this alone 
or somebody understands, right? There can be empathy uh, in that music, a shared, a shared empathy. I think that's where, uh, you know, you look at uh, um, uh, Schindler's List, right? The, that mournful tune out of there. And well, you know, and going back to Auschwitz, and uh, and to think that tune could communicate and does communicate so much. It's the same thing with Song of Hope, right? I mean, it can communicate both joy and and sadness, right? I mean, now that we're on the other side of of Ryan's passing, it's like, wow, this is very bittersweet, but it's also still a song of hope. You know, um, so that's that's my two cents on on that. But I just I, I'm looking at the the ability. This this is why music and art is so important. It is it allows uh, consumers of that art to to feel. Yeah, we we make something tangible because actually to just use that the example of the piece I talked about. Let this place. My whole thing was like when I was at school in England you learned about the Holocaust. That was something you learned about. And you know, in England, history is very different to over here because we've got quite a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it's incredibly significant that that was part of the curriculum. And more and more, as that generation is now passing, we, we, we don't seem to teach it anymore. I mean, it's mentioned and it's, but it's not gone into, and, I, and you know, I, when I was at school, it's when they first reopened the camps. So you could go in and you could see what, what had happened. It became um, very much a place of, of learning and, and remembrance. And, and so like, for me, it was always something that I could feel by the way it was taught to me and seeing firsthand. And of course you talk to your grandma or your granddads or whatever, and it's what they fought for. Like they literally, you know, some of their friends died and they can tell those stories and they're real because you can feel the truth in their, in what they're telling you. And we're now, that generation is, there's only a few left. And so given that we don't get that at home as much as we would have, in, you know, when I was younger, and given that we don't teach it in the classroom, I think it's become too easy to forget the lessons you've learned there. And so the whole point of this piece to me was that you can make it tangible. You can talk about 6 million people dying and it really, I can't, we don't know what it, I mean, what does 1 million people look like? I mean, we've been in concert halls and looked out and seen maybe 3000 people. So we can understand that. And we've maybe been to, uh, an ITG or a Midwest and, and we know what 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000 people looks like, but we can't even imagine a million, let alone 6 million. It's a completely yeah. alien number. And so it's in danger of almost becoming not a parody of itself, but it's something so intangible. It's so far removed from anything your imagination could ever conceive that it's easier to just walk away from it than it is to deal with what it was. And it's just through music, we have that chance to make those emotions the way that my grandma would tell a story. We have a chance to, to tell the story ourselves in a way that just touches people very deeply and personally, I, I hope. And so, yeah, the, the, the ability to do that is like, 
it's a it's a privilege to be able to get to do this for for a living you know every day well it's it's nice to talk to somebody that has this passion for for this art and it's not you know to me it's of course you want to make a living off of this but this is obvious that that's not what drives you to write it's, no no yeah no if i if i if i could i'd write for a lot less money and write for a lot more people but you know, there's there's realities that we have to pay mortgages and sure. and you know, as I'm finding out today, vet bills, you know, all these kinds of things need paying for. So we and 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 I'm a big believer that art should cost because we we we're, we're in danger of, of not understanding, or when I say we are, I don't think it's any of us that will be listening to this, but the the powers that be, whether it's admins at schools or universities or going up to governmental levels in danger of, of not understanding the difference between value and cost and well, what we well. do what we do is of such huge value to to society and it should cost i'm not saying that it should be prohibitive i think that kids should be able to go and listen to a symphony orchestra whether they're the kids of millionaires or whether they're kids who don't have any money like that should be uh, there should be equitable access to, to music for, for everybody, but it should, someone should still pay for those kids. I'm not saying those kids have to find the money no, themselves. I, I someone should still pay for it. It shouldn't be free because once we start doing things for free, that's the value we've placed on, placed on it. And that was going to be my comment is uh, there's been such uh, a need for artists to put stuff out on the internet for free during all of this, that I'm, I'm, afraid that there's going to be an expectation that this will continue, that we'll continue to give away performances, give away creations, give away. Uh, and so, yeah, where's the perceived value in that? It's like, well, why am I going to pay to go to a concert hall when I can watch it streamed, you know, yeah. for, for little or nothing right in the comfort of my own home. And I'm sure there's, there's, that's going to be okay on some level, but that can't be the model that we end up with. No. And, and, and my concern with all of that, number one, I don't like seeing things for free anyway, but number two, what, like I hear a lot and I see a lot of people talking about advocacy and stuff and how important it is right now. But like, what I really want to see isn't advocacy for teaching music or getting music in concert halls again, all those things, because they should be a byproduct of the, the end goal. The advocacy should be for the power of music. And if we advocate for the power of music, getting back in concert halls, getting back in rehearsals, they're all levels below that that become obvious answers if people understand the power of what it is that we do, the, 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 the way it can change lives and, and, and society around us. You know, I mentioned earlier, Ryan and I had a lot of, we were such good buddies and we'd have a beer together and all the rest of it. But I think the, the one thing that kind of brought us together so much was just like this sense that what we did was through a belief of what music could do rather than being a trumpet player and a, a composer. It was just, that was our vehicle to be almost evangelical about the, the power of what we do. And, and, and I always say, you know, that all those things I mentioned earlier, the joy and the, the hope and the beauty and, empathy and all those things, I think they're true. And, and the healing, 
all those things. And it means that if you accept that as true, every note we play or conduct or compose has the power to bring hope or to bring joy or to bring healing, beauty, love, empathy, whatever. And that we should, we should never ever lose sight of, of the fact that one note could change somebody's life. It can change the world around us. So if we can get hold of that as a concept and make that the power, make that at the very top of the advocacy pyramid, then the rest will fall into place because people will understand. They will, they will just understand. I've been getting a lot of, um, whenever I do a clinic uh, on Zoom or whatever, especially up here, I don't really fully understand the, the way state legislatures work down there. But up here, I, I'll say, you know, just write to your MLA, that's your, your local, I think probably state mm -hmm. senator or state, it's, it's in your state, in your provincial legislature, basically. And I, and I say, write to them and just tell them what the power of music is, what music means to you. And I said, then the next week you write again. I said, but it has to be different because they're not going to read it if it's the same letter again. So your goal is through the week to do something that demonstrates that power of music maybe you send a video into a care home of you playing a Christmas carol, because usually they'd have people coming in, but not this year. So maybe you send a video in on an iPad and, and you contact them and you haven't put it up on the screen and, and you let them, you write the letter telling them that you did that and what the reaction was and what the feedback was. So you've demonstrated the power of music. And then the next week you do the same thing. And then the next week, and then the next week, and these letters all have to be different, but you know what? if we can demonstrate that power. I'm not saying that these politicians don't, under, don't understand it. It's just not in the forefront of their mind. But in the end of the day, if it is in the forefront of their mind, maybe, just maybe, when they come to a vote about where this money's getting cut, because it will happen, we know that. Mm -hmm. Maybe, just maybe, we've done our job as, as advocates and they understand the power because maybe they just don't understand it right now. Well, and so, and, and the rest of their constituents might not understand it as well. I mean, somebody yeah. has to, to communicate that message. And, and artists, you know, we have to remain artists, right? We have to let those people do their, their thing. Um, yeah. I, I, one, one more thing here, and then, and then I want to wrap up. I, I, I appreciate your time today. But uh, I'm just thinking Beethoven 7, second movement, how sublime it is. And then the third movement, you know, how mm -hmm. Beethoven can communicate... <laughs> one end to me one end of the spectrum to the other in in the same symphony uh, and of course you mentioned you're you enjoy beethoven appreciate beethoven but uh, i do too but for reasons like that is oh my gosh what he can do and how yeah. simple again how simple that second movement is well that that that's you know beethoven is is the like i mean beethoven or stravinsky for me i, I don't know how you choose greatest composer or anything like that, but I'd go for one of those two for sure. But Beethoven's ability to, to use a very simple idea and take you by the hand on this journey where you never feel alien from the music. You never feel like he's left you behind. And, and I think there's a simplicity to so much of it that you can, you can really buy into. And actually it's incredibly complex to write that in a way that feels simple, you know, it's kind of this weird juxtaposition of ideas. But yeah, he was he was the 
the the absolute king of it you know i mean mm-hmm. um the fifth symphony i always use that as an example when first talking to students about the importance of development and why we do it and i'm like listen to this guy he had four notes and wrote the most famous piece of classical music on on earth from those first four notes and and not once does it get boring not once does it lack energy or interest and not once as a listener do you feel that you don't know where you are that somehow this composer sees themselves as completely above you and you should be grateful that he wrote a piece that you can pay a hundred bucks to go and listen to a symphony perform no you never feel that with Beethoven or at least I don't and like that's again that's for me that's joyful that's that's the way I want to be as a composer you know if you can make sure that you can never it's dead easy to be smart as a composer you know like you learn everything at college and you can do it all but sometimes like the the point where I realized I was you know a bit more mature as a composer not grown up I'm not it it turns out I'm never going to grow up but that's (laughs) thank goodness right yeah well listen being a composer it's not you know things like responsibilities and uh you know, consequences for actions, they've, they've been something that passed us by. But but it was when I kind of finally started writing long notes in pieces. Mm. And you didn't have to hide behind fast notes or texture. You were confident that a long note could, could happen and could say so much. And it's that thing again about passing trust, because if you write a whole note, I need the performer to kind of say, well, how do I get from the beginning to the end of that note? What's the journey the composers kind of suggested to me on the page? I need to like take that as seriously as I do if it was a passage of 30 second notes, you know? So um, for sure that, that yeah, Beethoven was just a genius at that sort of thing. Well, yeah. every sort of thing, I think it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, this has been wonderful. I, I mean, I really enjoyed uh, getting to meet you finally like this. You know, email is one thing, but uh, this, uh, but then actually getting together and share a coffee or a pint, as you say, would be, I think, the next best. That's the next step. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So if I ever get up to uh, Winnipeg or if you ever get down to Indianapolis, uh, uh, you got to let me know. And I, there we go. We can do it in the middle. We'll go to Chicago. Sure. Why not? <laughs> this would be a great time of year, right? It'll be yeah. colder for me and warmer for you. There you go. <laughs> so, well, uh, thank you. I, I appreciate uh, your time today and uh, best wishes. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, you take care. Thank you so much. Right.